welcome. Uh, my name's Ed Crane. I'm president of the Cato Institute. Uh, thank you for uh, waiting uh, for a while, and we're delighted to have you here. We're going to, uh, after uh, Senator Hagel speaks, uh, we'll have a uh, buffet lunch upstairs. Uh, Milton Friedman said there's no such thing as a free lunch, and you're sitting here for a half hour probably uh, confirms that. Uh, but, but in any event, uh, uh, he'll, uh, Senator Hagel will be signing books. You can purchase a book up there and, and um, get him to autograph it for you. Um, but we are delighted to have uh, the senior senator from Nebraska, Chuck Hagel, uh, with us uh, this afternoon. Um, he uh, uh, serves in the U.S. Senate on the um, uh, Foreign Relations Committee, uh, the Banking Committee, Housing and Urban Affairs, and Intelligence and Rules Committee. Uh, he's somebody who has been a major force in the Senate, not just in the Republican Party, um, and somebody who I've been uh, a great admirer of for many years. Um, he is here to talk, among other things, about his book, America, Our Next uh, Chapter. And it is a book that's been endorsed by people from Tom Brokaw to Alan Greenspan. It's a terrific read. It is such, I don't agree with everything in it, but I agree with most of it. And uh, uh, but it's so straightforward and honest, it really is a book that you really ought to uh, purchase because it's something that um, is unusual in Washington to have a senator write something like this. Uh, senator Hagel has an important announcement he wants to make uh, this afternoon. Uh, he wanted to let everyone know that he uh, still hasn't decided if he's running for president or not. <laughs> At least we didn't have to fly to Omaha to hear that. Uh, but, uh, but it's interesting because yesterday in Politico, uh, there was an article about the serious discussion of whether or not Barack Obama might pick Senator Hagel as his vice presidential candidate, which would certainly make me more interested in Barack Obama than I am right now. Uh, but uh, both uh, Obama and Senator Hagel uh, opposed the war, I think, for the right reasons, the war in Iraq. Uh, certainly Cato scholars and I agree with that position. Uh, the benefit, of course, from uh, the standpoint of the Obama campaign is that they would be adding somebody who really understands the free enterprise system, who is, uh, understands the importance of free trade. We do an analysis every year of the Senate voting record in terms of support for free trade and opposition to business subsidies. And Senator Hagel is always at the top of that list. Uh, so that would be a, a, a huge uh, positive thing uh, for, for that campaign. Um, Lord Acton said that uh, uh, power tends to corrupt and absolute power uh, corrupts absolutely. And uh, it is a rare individual who is not seduced by the power of being in the U.S. Senate. I mean, there have been people uh, like that. Uh, I think of uh, people like uh, Bill Proxmire, um, Ev Dirksen, Barry Goldwater, Gene McCarthy, um, more recently in the Senate today, John Sununu. Uh, but certainly uh, our speaker today 
is someone who falls into that category, somebody who I believe is leaving the U.S. Senate because he's just tired of dealing uh, with people who are more interested in power than principle. Uh, please welcome our speaker today, the senior senator from Nebraska, Senator Chuck Hagel. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, Ed, thank you. I uh, am grateful for your generous introduction. Uh, much exaggerated, but that's uh, the way you are, Ed. <laughs> I mean, we've just had to deal with that over the years. Uh, many of you may know that uh, on my staff for the last 12 years uh, have been uh, a number of graduates of this organization. Uh, Kevin Chapman, if he's somewhere around here, he was an intern here. And uh, I, uh, I think I've always had, every year I've been in the Senate, Ed, a, a, a Cato graduate uh, in some uh, capacity. And I've always appreciated uh, their awareness and knowledge and, uh, and strength of purpose that uh, you and this institution have developed uh, in uh, those who work here and have a sense uh, of what government should do and what it can't do and what markets should do, can do. And so for uh, all those that you have shaped and molded in this institution over the years, uh, thank you. I apologize that you sat here for 30 minutes. I, uh, that's his fault. I, I didn't. Uh, a typical politician, you blame everyone else. Um, but actually, I was doing something that I think Ed would approve of, and most of you, I uh, just came from a banking committee hearing. Now, that necessarily wouldn't be something you'd approve of, but um, nonetheless, we've done no harm. Uh, the, that's, uh, that's something I know you would agree to. But uh, it was a hearing on a bill that I'm particularly proud of, and we might have some possibilities uh, to get it through this year. It's uh, the Dodd-Hagel Infrastructure Bank bill focusing on harnessing the private sector uh, of some purpose and a public-private partnership to start looking at how we're going to how we're going to finance infrastructure in this country. And uh, when we are looking at the realities of the dynamics of our budget and the deficits and the debt and what we've done to this country over the last seven, eight years, starting with the fact we've run up a third of the national debt the last seven years, there isn't going to be any money for infrastructure. And uh, we had four mayors who, as you all know, the mayors are on the front line of governing uh, the country. And they have had to be creative. And uh, these mayors were from all over uh, the country. And so the idea of the Dodd-Hagel bill uh, is to uh, start using, harnessing wisely private capital to invest in our country, not just uh, stock markets and hedge funds, but uh, infrastructure. And when it's been noted before and was again today uh, that, for example, of all the industrialized nations of the world, the United States is dead last by a long way in percentage of GDP that goes to our infrastructure. Uh, also noted a report Morgan Stanley put out recently uh, that uh, over the next 10 years, the developing economies of the world uh, will invest, projected now on, uh, on the books, about uh, $24 trillion in new infrastructure. 
Now, a nation cannot compete uh, without infrastructure. And that is in addition to all the other societal expectations that we have in our country today, leading to the real question uh, as to whether the next generation of Americans uh, will, in fact, have a lower standard of living. And I think that's a very real question. And I think that's as big a challenge as we have uh, in our nation. It will be as big a challenge for our next set of leaders, the next president, his administration, the next Congress. And this is something that we'll be living with for a long time. Now, what does that have to do with why I'm here or, or the book, which I appreciate uh, Ed hawking a little bit today? And, and I uh, am grateful for an opportunity, a forum, to talk a little bit about it. And I'm, I'm going to soon open it to questions and comments, whatever you want to talk about. But what I have just noted as to why I was late uh, at this hearing today, focusing on this issue, uh, has an awful lot to do with why I wrote the book and what's in the book. And I wrote the book because I had not seen uh, in any particularly comprehensive lucid way or document uh, a, a rough statement analysis uh, sense of our country woven together uh, in, in a complete fabric of the challenges and the solutions that I offer uh, in one document. We have tended over the years to compartmentalize everything. And that's why I think we're in a great deal of trouble on infrastructure. We earmark, for example, things. Now, I'm not one who goes uh, to the extreme of uh, every earmark is bad for every reason, and that'll solve our problems. Uh, that, that alone will not solve our problems. That's part of the problem. Part of the reason it's part of the problem, not just the dollars, is because we have no policy. We have no energy policy. We have no trade policy. We have no infrastructure policy, and so no research policy. We spend a lot of money, but, but it's all over the place. Uh, there's no focus. There's no purpose. There, there's no strategic context to what we're doing. And so we do earmarks because senators like to take earmarks home. The University of Nebraska likes money, University of Pennsylvania, and, and uh, even... There are such things as getting bridge names after, getting a bridge or a hospital named after a, a sitting senator whose only claim to fame is that he stayed on the Appropriations Committee long enough to get a bridge named after him, taking your money, and say, aren't I a hero? Uh, what do you need? So in the dark of night, there's another $20 billion put in a deal. It goes to the research complex at the University of X or whatever it is. Point being, uh, we as the mayor of Kansas City uh, said, uh, a rather conservative Republican mayor of Kansas City said today in his testimony that uh, what America is doing to itself is that we are quietly uh, eroding the greatest country in the world, and quietly strangling our prosperity. And I happen to agree with that analysis, and it gets again back to why I wrote the book. Uh, those of you who had a chance to look at the book know that uh, in the 15 chapters, I, I talk about uh, an entire universe of specific things. I have a chapter, for example, on entitlements. 
Uh, it's criminal what we have not done to address entitlements in this country at, at, at the congressional level. No leadership. Uh, we know, not because Chuck Hagel writes it in a book or Ed Crane talks about it at Cato or anyone else talks about it, we know the facts are the facts. Uh, the demographics are such, the actuaries are such, the reality is clear that we can't afford what's coming. Not just structurally will we crush the system as we load on 77 million baby boomers onto Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid, that's what's coming over the next 10 years, we'll crush the structure it can't absorb it, it can't handle it, but we can't finance it. And so we kind of blithely, merrily go along, go back to our states and districts and give speeches about it. That's it. Um, but that's only but one part of it. I talk about our international competitive uh, position in the world, uh, our trade position in the world. I, I have a chapter on energy. Uh, I recall when uh, I was asked by Foreign Policy Magazine to write a piece for the, for the 2004 Republican Convention, which they had one written for the Democratic Convention in 2004. They wanted me to write a piece about a foreign policy for the 21st century. And uh, I focused on seven specific areas that I, uh, I believe are going to be critical for America's foreign policy. And by the way, foreign policy is just the arc of our interest. It's not some uh, esoteric uh, kind of... Uh, Harvard-esque discipline that you get a Ph.D. in. Uh, foreign policy is the housing. It is the arc of America's interest because within that arc fits security. If it's trade, it's everything within that arc of foreign policy, with all the instruments of power within that power uh, base that a nation uses and must use. And so as we worked our way through some of these issues, and I identify some of these uh, uh, in my book, uh, chapter by chapter, I try to bring together, I hope, uh, some cogent analysis of all of these pieces that uh, uh, are going to be, do represent uh, the challenges of this country for the 21st century, well into the 21st century. But I also make another point as I talk about the so-called domestic issues like entitlements. And, and, and by the way, I don't think you can, you can say domestic or foreign anymore. I think that's 20th century thinking. That's 20th century framework. The, the fact is we live in a global community of almost 6.5 billion people, whether we like that or not. Uh, that global community is underpinned by a global economy. Now, we're not going to rotate backward and go back to the good old days of the 50s where, where we had manufacturing jobs uh, in New Hampshire or Michigan. Those jobs are gone. There, there is uh, an uh, old law uh, adage. It's not in the Constitution. It's not in any law book that I'm aware of. Uh, but it never fails, and it's been with mankind since we uh, propped ourselves up on two legs. Uh, and that is the law of comparative advantage. Comparative advantage. And I suppose when some fool once invented the stone wheel, that that person was pilloried by the villagers, by, are you crazy? Look at the people you've put out of work. What will we do? Uh, we won't have to stoop over and put stones and sticks on our backs and walk up the hill. I I'll be out of a job. 
every advancement for mankind has had the same kind of a challenge. It's okay. But we've advanced mankind. And when we look at the last 60 years, astounding, unprecedented, historic advances for man, not just America, but for man, uh, have propelled us into a new world. That means new thinking. That means a 21st century frame of reference, which I try to project in this book by the chapters and then tie it together at the front end, tie it together uh, at the back end. And that means our thinking has to shift in not are we free enterprise or not. Absolutely not. I think free enterprise is more important today than it may ever have been. Free enterprise is all about improving standards of living for more people. And what does that produce? Stability, security in the world. Is that bad? I don't think so. It means less Marines, less Army, less defense budget, I hope. Uh, standards of living for all people. That's, that's the real essence of the effort that we make, un getting underneath the issues. Just as General Petraeus said in our Foreign Relations Committee hearing the other, the other day, I guess it's been three or four months now, uh, there is no military solution in Iraq. Well, of course not. Of course not. There wasn't a military solution in Vietnam and Algeria or any other area like this. And we can't compare Iraq or the Middle East today to the bipolar challenges we had uh, during the days of the Cold War. Relatively simple, actually, those days. Relatively simple. It is much more complicated today in the world. Much more combustible. Much more dangerous. I think we live at the most dangerous time ever. We live also, I believe, at one of the great transformational periods in history. When we uh, observe the diffusion of power in the world today, look at what's going on in the world. We are seeing, I, I think, the greatest diffusion of economic power in the history of man. Over the last few months, where did some of the world's largest, greatest financial institutions go to recapitalize? They didn't go to Europe. They didn't go to the West Coast. They went to the Persian Gulf in Asia. And with that diffusion of wealth, and we just had a hearing yesterday on sovereign wealth funds, the astounding amount of wealth and capital that's being accumulated in so many of these, these new emerging countries based primarily on energy, and I spend a lot of time on energy because that, that is as key to our security, to our prosperity, to our advancement in the world as any one thing. It, it isn't homeland security. There's a role for homeland security. But we're doing this to ourselves when we, when we are allowing, just as the mayor of Kansas City said, to quietly degrade and strangle our prosperity. It isn't terrorists that's our threat. They're, terrorists are threats. They are real. That is not the threat to the future of America. We've got to deal with it. But we have so deflected our focus, our attention, our resources the last seven years on scaring the hell out of the American public and on terrorism, we've eliminated every other critical part of our security and our future. Uh, Mayor Bloomberg and a couple other mayors talked today about the disaster of what we call our immigration system. Uh, American corporations, job generators, prosperity generators can't get enough people in here, can't bring some of their people in from the, around the world, some of the kind of people that they want to bring in here to help generate new jobs, new wealth, new creativity. 
Why? Because we shut it down. We can't get enough of our visas opened up, H-1B, whatever it is. So what happens? As Mayor Bloomberg said and other mayors said, same, same by the way, point across the board. What happens is people go somewhere else. Toronto, Montreal, wherever they want to go. Uh, this world is not the world of 50 years ago. It's not the world of 25 years ago. Sovereign wealth funds, investors, money, wealth have options today that they didn't have 25 years ago. And you, you have noted, I suspect, the tremendous erosion of the power of our stock markets and where capital has been raised over the last 10 years. We're now number three in New York behind Hong Kong uh, and London, where international IPOs are initiated. We're number three. We invented this stuff. I quote at the beginning of my book a great historian, but more importantly uh, or accurately, I think, the greatest recorder of history, uh, Arnold Toynbee. And Toynbee has said in his great book on world civilizations, world history, uh, as he charted through all the civilizations of man, as to what happened to those civilizations. And, and he said three things, and I mentioned this in the book. One, civilizations are movements. They're movements, not conditions. They're journeys, not safe harbors. And civilizations die from suicide, not murder. How appropriate that comment is to where we are in the world today. Every problem that we have, whether it's entitlements, whether it's deficits, whether it's no energy policy, not producing any new energy in this country in 30 years, we brought on ourselves. It's exactly what the mayor of Kansas City said today. We have brought on ourselves. Uh, this is a world that is shifting as dramatically as any time, certainly since after World War II. But I think the, the, the rate of that shift and change is so beyond what we saw after World War II. It's not even calculable in the same matrix of measurements because of the immediacy of the world that we live in today. I mean, we, we move billions of dollars in assets like that. Um, that means there's little margin of error. And, and so we look at these challenges that I, I try to inventory and record that are connected. Certainly proliferation of weapons of mass destruction extremism, intolerance, terrorism, the environment, energy, all, all are thread into the same fabric. You cannot talk about any of them without understanding all the other pieces. You can't make decisions on one of those in some kind of a compartment without having an effect or reaction somewhere else. You can't talk about environmental policies, cap and trade, whatever else you want to talk about, without talking about energy or the economy. And you can't talk about the three of them without talking about stability in the world, alliances in the world, relationships in the world, security in the world. They are all now woven into this great global pattern, into this great global fabric. That means we are going to have to reorient. We are going to have to shift. We are have, have to make some tough choices that we haven't made in a long time. We're going to have to prioritize resources. We're going to have to find cogent policy and the next president, more than anything else, is going to have to find a common denominator of consensus to govern this country. We cannot afford another four years of drift 
worse than drift in some cases. I think we've done great damage to ourselves. Uh, we can't squander another four years. We can't afford it. Uh, I think we're better than that. I think the American people are better than that. They expect better than that. They are better than that. And we've let them down. One of the chapters in my book, I talk about where was Congress. I think Congress has abdicated its responsibilities in, in maybe the greatest way in the history of this republic over the last few years. Uh, I think we're coming back. Uh, but it's cost us because we kind of look the other way on, on everything. Uh, I talk about young people. I, there's a section in there and a, a chapter on citizenship. And I don't know if many of you saw the piece in the New York Times a couple of days ago, maybe it was Sunday or Monday, on what Justice Day O'Connor is doing uh, with a program that she's now connected with with a number of colleges to try to uh, bring back into our curriculum and our schools basic civics, basic understanding of how our country works. What is a Supreme Court justice? What is the Congress? Uh, the astounding ignorance in this country today of just basic understanding of how our system works is very, very dangerous. And uh, she saw it. She saw it in the court. She saw it as a citizen. I see it uh, all the time. And yes, we've got to produce scientists. Yes, we have to produce mathematicians and, and all the kinds of disciplines that are key to research and development that have kept us ahead uh, in the world, on the cutting edge of every technology. We invented most of them. But so, too, is citizenship a critical component of a nation. It's absolutely critical for a democracy. It must be in a democracy. We are failing the next generation by not helping them through this. Service to your country. I talk about that. Uh, I'm not advocating a draft. I'm thinking and I'm saying and I talk about it, we ought to have some national discussion and someone, and someone, a president, should put forward some ideas of how we give these young people an opportunity to take a year or two out of their lives. Think of all the things that we have to do in this country, all the good work that needs to be done. There isn't a young person that I've met, and I, I meet a lot of them all over the country, grade school, high school, colleges. I've got some of my interns here today that does not want to be in some way connected with a purpose higher than their own self-interest. It's who we are. It's who we are. We're losing that. We're, we're disconnecting that. It's not the young people's fault. It's our fault. The next president is going to have to focus on that. But this next president is going to have to build a consensus to govern this country. That means bipartisanship, reaching out to the Congress. There are going to be differences. There should be differences. Absolutely. There should be tension. Uh, there should be strong debate. But we have been captive to political, tactical victories for the last few years, both parties, the President, the Congress. It's all about political, tactical victories. Let's win this one. I've sat through I don't know how many luncheons, as all senators and congressmen do, each Tuesday, or at least Tuesday in the Senate. Democrats get together. Republicans get together. And... Uh, in 12 years in the Senate, I can't vividly recall on one of those occasions when the Republicans got together and my Democratic friends tell me the same thing happens in their caucuses, where we, where we talk about and focus on that hour, hour and a half on how do we make a better world? How do we fix the entitlement problem? You know what it's about? 
It's about how we're going to put the Democrats in a position to take a tough vote. How are we going to embarrass the Democratic leader? How are we going to some tactical strategy to screw the Democrats? And the Democrats do the same. Who's looking out for America here? Uh, I talk about our structure. One of the uh, chapters I have on politics is a chapter I call Crabs and Prairie Dogs. And I, being from Nebraska, don't know a lot about crabs. I like them. <laughs> but I know a lot about prairie dogs. If you've ever watched a prairie dog, they dart to the next hole, they jump down the hole, and the minute they pop their little heads up, they look around to see if there's any, any range of danger, and if there is, they go right down that hole. And they stay in that hole, and they'll wait till it's clear, and they run to the next hole, and they jump down. It's a lot like what we do here in Washington. Uh, no danger? Oh, Bob Novak may write a bad column about you. Not Novak, but I mean, I use him as... A, example of uh, enlightened journalists, um, <laughs> which Novak is, I might add. But uh, we're, we're afraid all the time. We're scared all the time. And then this whole business of terrorism is just, has just has held America hostage the last few years. It's terrorism. There isn't a thing we've done here the last few years that hasn't had something to do uh, about shutting our borders down or whatever it is. It's terrorists, terrorists, terrorists. Terrorists are real, absolutely. They have to do it, deal with it, absolutely. We're not going to fix the terrorist problem. We're not going to win against terrorists unless we have strong alliances, unless we have a relationships with close, seamless intelligence gathering and sharing. That's where, you, that's where you stop terrorists. You don't stop terrorists after they've blown up the building, after they killed the people. Now, you can go, if you can find them, you can go kill them, if you can find them. Uh, you stop them at the front end, and you stop them because you've got alliances, and those alliances are framed and anchored on common interests, just as Eisenhower and Truman and Marshall and the great leaders after World War II reoriented the world. They restructured the world. They built those coalitions of common interests. Now, they're all imperfect, like we all are. NATO, United Nations, IMF, World Bank, General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which is now WTO, dozens of multilateral development banks, all imperfect, absolutely. All made mistakes, still do, absolutely. But think if we would not have had those institutions the last 60 years. Does anybody think the world would be better off? I don't think so. At least those institutions give us some framework to work within some platforms. Now, they're frustrating, they drive you crazy, People use them for their own political end. I got that. But, but we do the same thing in Congress. We do the same thing in every political environment. There's where our future is. Open trade. Break those barriers down. And why is that so important, aside from the prosperity and the standard of living? Well, when people are actually doing business together, they're starting to understand each other a little bit. Maybe, maybe not like each other, but that actually happens too. Personal relationships. Personal relationships drive everything. The human condition drives everything. And we have somehow drifted away from that reality and that component. Last chapter, uh, and then we'll get to whatever you want to talk about, uh, is, a, is a chapter I try to tie things together, and it's a little bit of a leadership chapter and so on. This is not a leadership chapter that's essentially a, a restatement of a Hallmark card. Leadership is virtue and goodness and honesty. I, I agree. I don't have any against all those things. But it's more than that. It, leadership is applying 
those virtues, applying those to actually making a better world, taking a chance, showing some courage, stepping out in front when it's a little lonely, when you've got to go against your own party or your own president. I say to people, not because I'm holding myself up as any kind of a, a beacon or an example on this, but when people, and I've gotten the hell beat out of me uh, over the last few years, and my, a lot of my Republican friends, you're not a Republican, you're a traitor, you're not even American. Um, and, I, and I just, I say, listen, when people come to Washington, when you take a responsible job, when you have the trust and the confidence of those who sent you here, or you wouldn't have gotten here, or at least enough of them, to get you elected, you take an oath of office, and you take an oath to the Constitution of the United States. You don't take an oath of office to the president or your political party or Cato or any philosophy. You take an oath to the country. And you are saying in that swearing of that oath on a Bible, I will do everything I can to protect our country and do the best I can to make the right decisions for my country. Now, if you stay that course, and I, I term it at the end of my book, shooting an azimuth. Those Army guys like Novak and others who have been in the Army know what shooting an azimuth is. Many people don't know what that is. But shooting an azimuth is a compass, and, you, and you, where you want to go, take the hill, whatever it is, whatever your purpose is, your mission is, you shoot that azimuth on your compass. Now, you may have to go around a mountain. You may have to go through a tunnel or over a river. But you stay on, on that azimuth. You stay on that course. What was the course that we were on and should be on, and when we come here, what course are we on, to make this a better country, to make this a stronger country, a better world? I'm not conflicted by that. Uh, as I said and, and uh, heard from some people not too long ago when I said it, if you, want a, if you want a safe job, sell shoes. And I heard from some shoe salesmen about it. I, it wasn't a, a derogatory. I actually sold shoes once, but I, I, it, it was just a – that's a – it's a little more st uh, stable, that job, and, and you don't, I don't think risk as much in that job as you do being a politician. So I didn't mean to, to uh, degrade shoe salesmen, but nonetheless, that, that's the point. And so I end up by saying, and, and I, I remind many people who read this, of the great achievements, but more importantly, contributions made by almost every, uh, every leader we've had. We all make mistakes. Leaders make mistakes. But almost every president we've ever had has left something very important. They did something very important. And I recite some of those, um, to Kennedy, to Johnson, to Reagan, and, and I confess, uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm a great admirer of Eisenhower. And so I give him a lot more time because I think we could do with a lot more Eisenhower than the rest here in the next president. Um, and actually, Eisenhower used to think. I mean, I know that's foreign. Uh, and I would like to see a president actually sit quietly, maybe even as long as three hours. He can get up and use a bathroom or coffee, but by himself, look out the window and think. 
Think about what we're doing. Think about these tough issues. Think about consequences. When you, when you make a decision, what are those consequences? When you go to war, when you take a nation to war, what are those consequences? This is not an abstraction. This is real. People die. There's going to be things happen. You're going to ruin lives. Now, you better think through that very carefully. Not just war, but everything. I want a president who's not manic and jumping on planes and out of planes and giving speeches and so on and so on. A president who actually thinks. And I hope the next president will do that, will bring back some of that tradition in our leaders. Last point. I say in the chapter, it's the title of the chapter, who would be on your Mount Rushmore? I entitle it My Mount Rushmore. And I, I challenge anybody who reads that chapter to think for themselves and say, if we were building a new Mount Rushmore today, who would be on my Mount Rushmore? Would you take the four presidents down? Would you keep them up? Would you put some more on? Nobody else worthy? What would you think? Who, who in your lives, who do you think in your lives, each individual? And each of us has one book in them. Uh, you each could write a book. Some of you have. Some of you have written more than one. But there's nobody uh, alive that doesn't have a good book in them. And so you think to yourself, who would be on my Mount Rushmore? Now, and I, I keep the four on there. And I put three other people on. on. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but, I'll, but I put them on. But there's a reason that I end the book that way and trying to tie it back together. Well, if I've not thoroughly confused you, I mean, I am a senator, and we do those things to confuse people. Um, uh, again, I appreciate an opportunity to explain a little bit why I wrote the book and uh, what's in it. Uh, I also end very optimistically because, as I said in the banking committee today, with all our problems, with all our challenges, and, and we have a lot of them, and this next president is going to inherit an inventory of problems I think probably not like any president since FDR. Uh, but they're far worse and deeper and wider than what FDR inherited. Uh, there isn't a problem out there we can't fix. There isn't a challenge out there that we can't meet. Uh, if we're wise enough to use what we have, and I said uh, most of the people uh, in that panel who were mayors like Bloomberg and others had been businessmen. I said, you know, and I was a businessman. Uh, businessmen look at bottom lines. They look at balance sheets. Balance sheets are very important. Most people don't know how to read them, but, most, but they are critical. I would not trade America's balance sheet for any other country's balance sheet. There's no other country in the world even close to our balance sheet nation of laws, constitution, the fabric of our people, our society, uh, our economy, the flexibility of that economy, the strength, and so on and so on. But just as the mayor from Kansas City said, we are quietly strangling our prosperity by what we're doing to ourselves. And we've got to reverse that. That must happen. I think it will happen. I think either John McCain or Barack Obama understands, maybe not the same way I do maybe, or, or we agree. I know we don't agree on everything. But I think they do get the essence of what I was talking about, what I think is going to be critical, a consensus to govern our country. We've got to get beyond the paralysis that we have put on ourselves and our country. We've got to make some decisions. And you may not like some of those decisions, but we've got to make some decisions here. And, and we should fight like hell on the ones we think are wrong, debate them. But we've got to move beyond. Tension and that part of the process is only part of the process. That's not the end of the process. But we have, we've shut that down when it comes to tension. And we just, it's tension, tension, tension. And uh, this, this uh, constant um, dynamic of what the Romans used to call bread and circuses, uh, entertainment. We, we love the, the confrontation. 
the news media loves the confrontation. I, I rarely get uh, smart, legitimate questions from journalists. It's all the superfluous, quick hit, uh, fun uh, stuff that, 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 that ignites members uh, and also uh, endears audiences so that the ratings go up. Uh, that's very dangerous in a democracy. Now, I'm not about ready to ban Rush Limbaugh or anybody else. This is a free country. You can express yourselves any way you want. But we're consumed with that kind of thing. And that's very dangerous, especially in the, in the uh, era in which we live, this great time of redefinition, redefinition in the world. We're better than that. We will get beyond that. I mentioned in, in every chapter where I think we could go. Uh, I don't mention a problem or a challenge without mentioning uh, what I think is a solution. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, uh, <clears throat> questions, whatever you want to do. Let me just uh, make one point, and that is that um, – your call for a thinking president seems to be a direct repudiation of the Bush administration. No, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, if you, if you, we have uh, microphones here. If uh, you'll wait when you're called on, and I'll ask the senator to call on you uh, for the microphone, and then if you tell us uh, your affiliation and ask a brief question, that would be great. We're the microphone people. Here they are. Come on in. Oh, they've never done this before, this new intern class. <laughs> okay, you want to call on something? Whatever. Uh, okay, we'll start right here then, and we'll just work our way back. Thank you, Senator. Oh, you can give him the microphone now. Thank you, Senator. I, I'm a journalist with the India Globe in Asia today. It was a great speech and really educational. I never heard anything in, uh, covering the Senator in White House. Um, you have been a great force in the U.S. Senate on many uh, issues, including terrorism and intelligence. Today, world depends on U.S. failures and U.S. success in many issues, on many issues. Uh, there is a chaos around the globe because of rise uh, in the food prices and also oil prices. And you, what what you predict, uh, who will be the next president of the United States, <laughs> and what the world and U.S. can expect from the new president as far as terrorism and rising of oil and food prices. Thanks, sir. Well, uh, uh, thank you. I, I don't know who the next president of the United States will be. Uh, most of you are far more qualified to answer that uh, than I am. But uh, I do think that this is going to be as defining an election in our country as we've seen in modern times. This one is going to count. Uh, and... As that all plays out, which I, I hope both the candidates now, now that they're on a general election track versus a primary campaign, which most of you know is a big difference, uh, will we'll really use this opportunity to define the big issues and where they would take the country and how they would take the country and their relationships. And I, and I have some confidence they'll do that. Um, as to your uh, other uh, points and questions, it, it – reflects somewhat on what I was talking about earlier, that, that terrorism is not driving a lot of this. Uh, I, would, I would start by saying when man is, is without hope, 
Not much else matters. Uh, the greatest challenge America and the developed countries have over the next 25 years will be to deal with the, this insidious cycle of despair that afflicts at least a third of mankind. And I am not one who has never, who has ever directly connected terrorism with poverty. I mean, bin Laden is a good example. That doesn't work. But I would offer this. Um, when um, men are locked down into that despair, then there's not much good's going to happen. There will be reactions. And if you want to see some of that, some of you have been there, many of you, uh, uh, go look uh, uh, at the West Bank, uh, at uh, Gaza, and some of these areas around the world, in Africa, what's, what's going on in uh, Zimbabwe. And, I mean, take a look. And that's the tough part of all this. And food prices, energy costs, factor right into this. Now, uh, these issues are so big and so wide and so global that you're, it seems to me the next president and our, and our allies working together around the world are going to have to deal with it in, in a 21st century frame of reference that requires big thinking to deal with big challenges. Get out of the underbrush of the nonsense that we have allowed ourselves to get drugged down into. We'll worry about the specifics and how you do this, but our presidents, our leaders, world leaders, have got to be talking about the big issues. Energy, biofuels, for example. Uh, now we have a, uh, a new debate in America about, oh, ethanol. Or now you're using corn for ethanol, and that's contributing to world hunger and the price of food and so on. So, well, there, there's a factor of that. This goes back to my earlier point about you can't talk about any of these things without talking about all of them. Just that one issue, food prices. What affects food prices? Well, natural disasters, drought, sure. Um, water, a huge deal. It's going to be a, maybe a bigger issue than oil. And in some cases, it already is. Uh, cost of energy, uh, relationships, working together, the targeted focus of our uh, foreign policy assistance program. Our, our foreign policy assistance programs are a disaster, a complete mockery. We have spent hundreds of billions of dollars. And uh, that has to come in line with what I was talking about, a, a frame of reference that is applicable and relevant to the challenges. I don't believe there's any quick answer to your question. Uh, we know what we have out in front of us. We know this is going to continue to be a huge problem. Uh, when people are dying of hunger and pestilence, and that brings on endemic health problems, it's a lot bigger than terrorism. A lot bigger than terrorism. I mean, we, we can contain terrorism to a certain extent, but you can't contain that. And you talk about instability in a world. I was talking to a couple of the presidential, I guess there are only two left now, uh, recently, both of them, and I talked about consequences of, of, of our policies and what's going to happen here. And you can't, you, you, you can't disregard any of this. So, I'm, again, I'm, I'm hopeful, and because I, I'll tell you why I'm also hopeful. Two main reasons. I think America wants to follow a competent, honest, accountable president. I think America's hungry for that. I don't need to make that comment based on my observation. Take me out of it. Eighty-three percent of the American public, according to the latest Gallup poll, say America's going in the wrong direction. What's that tell you? They're happy with us? 
Now, this, these aren't the 83% of the nuts in America or the liberals in America or anybody else. This is 83% of all Americans, conservatives, however way you brand yourself, communists, atheists, Catholics, Jews, whatever. 83% of America, historic, unprecedented. Now, that is a very dangerous number, but it also is a very good number for the next president. If the next president is wise, does it right, the country will follow that next president, even with tough choices. The world wants a strong America. You mentioned that. There isn't a leader, and I met, I, my staff told me last week, I met with 18 ambassadors. Actually, some of them are in this room uh, here in the last 10 days. And I met, I think, with five foreign ministers. There isn't a one of them, and I go all over the world, that doesn't tell me we want a strong America. We want America to lead. We don't want America to impose, dictate, invade, occupy. Uh, we want you to lead. We, we know the world's dangerous when America is weak and stumbling and bumbling around. Now, America is, a, is, is the great power, and the great powers are always, to a certain extent, resented a little bit. So that's, you factor that in. It's what I always call in anything I've ever done in my life, the cost of doing business. Any, there's no job I've had, and I've had a lot of them, that there wasn't some parts of that job that I could have done without. Uh, but that's the cost of doing business. It's a cost of the privilege of leading. Thank you. Would you consider running for vice president if Senator Obama asked you? Well, maybe with Bob Barr or Nader, but I don't know. Uh, I, Come on now. That's a serious question. Uh, I, uh, I don't expect to be asked by anybody. I don't expect to be on any ticket. And You would uh, consider it, though, if he asked you. Well, uh, Ed, I don't think any responsible citizen who cares about their country and has put a lot of years of his life in this country, which I have, and a lot of people have done a lot more than I have, uh, uh, could totally disregard uh, a presidential candidate asking for your help. I mean, it's a yes, Bob. Uh, <laughs> no, it's not. No, no, it's not a yes. No, it's not a yes. You, your question was, would you consider? Would you consider? Okay. Okay. You, 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 I couldn't anyway. I couldn't if John McCain called me right now or Barack Obama, and I, I couldn't say on the phone, no, I'm sorry, John. John, you and I are way apart on Iraq and Iran and so on and so on. Uh, I mean, you'd have to work your way through that. I mean, obviously, a vice presidential candidate has to be in the same channel and enough, close enough on the large wavelength of a president in order to do it. That's the only way, way it would work. So it's not a yes, but, but, but your question was considerate. That, that I, you'd have to. You wouldn't have any choice, or at least I wouldn't. Yes. the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. Uh, we have in Washington, especially at this place, a de constant debate about the appropriate size of government. And many of the problems that you've described and quite forcefully and cogently seem to be beyond the purview of private enterprise unassisted. So it, are there implications as to the correct size of government if we are concerned with macro solutions? Well, I'm not near wise enough to, to answer the, the question, is there an appropriate size of government we should have? I think that is determined by the relevancy of the dynamics of the challenges and the reality of the world around you. The fact is we have big government. I mean, and I'm always amazed, Bob, at a lot of my colleagues who go out and give speeches and say, we ought to go back to small government. We want limited government. And a lot of these are the same guys who will turn right around and vote for every increase, no child left behind, 
Part D of the Medicare prescription drug and so on and so on. But they'll go back and say, oh, I'm a, I'm a Republican small government guy. And you, you're kind of like, wait a minute, what is the hell of a disconnect here? <laughs> uh, how do you think you grow big government? We've grown the government bigger than, than any time in modern history the last eight years. Far bigger government today by any measurement. Uh, no, it's here to stay. Uh, I mean, that's just the, the way it is. And I think... What we need to do, rather than probably spinning our wheels on trying to, well, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take it down a third of the size. I mean, first of all, you'll never do it for a lot of reasons. Let's focus on, first, making a government work. Let's focus on making it as efficient as a government can be. A government's never going to be, can't be, uh, as efficient as private enterprise. For, I mean, it's just, it won't be. Uh, let, let's refocus on what we want government to do for us. What, what is appropriate for government to do? We, we now have government do everything, everything. And we just all kind of accept it, both parties. And you do it by saying, well, but, you know, if I don't do that, these people came in, and I can't really help the world if I'm out of office because I'll be voted out if I'd, I'd be opposed to that. Um, well, that's, that goes back to my point about prairie dogs. If you're, out, you're voted out of office, you're voted out of office. I, mean, I don't think there's a birthright to being a senator or a congressman or a president or anything else. If you're out, uh, you're out. I don't have to be a senator. Uh, I think everybody who runs for office should take that attitude going in and going out. Uh, I'm not who I am based on the title of the United States senator. Uh, I think it'd be, it'd be demeaning if I, that's how I saw myself. Only, I'm proud of it. I'm damn right I'm proud of it. And I think I've worked hard. But that's more to me than that. I don't want to get too philosophical, but I think it's got to take that texture to it and, and that strategic thinking about how to deal with what you're saying. The other part of your answer to the question, all things in life have a confluence dynamic to them. Rivers, problems, age, relationships, all things will come to some confluence. We are at such a confluence in, the, in our country today. We are at such a confluence. What do you mean, Senator? Well, we know, I mentioned earlier about entitlements. Let's just take that confluence. We're not going to be able to sustain the commitments by the latest number, by the way, over the next 75 years, Federal Reserve is projected, we have for these young people sitting here, you'll be glad to hear this if you don't know this, 49, $49 trillion in unfunded liabilities to sustain what's on the books right now for Medicare, Social Security, Medicaid. I mean, that's almost laughable, isn't it? $49 trillion. You don't know where you're going to get. Now, this is at a time the world is becoming more competitive every day, that we're not the only big dog out there anymore. I mean, we're the biggest dog, yeah. Not the only one now. And uh, so the confluence that I'm talking about is, is, is coming. So we're going to be forced to deal with these things. We're going to be forced to deal with energy policy. One of the concerns I have, because I do believe we have some responsibility for the environment, of course we do, but I'm concerned because what's coming here, uh, and especially if we would attack Iran or if we see the, the Middle East blow up any more than it is, you'll, you'll get to $200 a barrel oil. You'll get to almost $10 a gallon gasoline. That's if you can get it, and so on and so on. Now, you don't think there's a confluence there? ho oh, ho now, what that's going to mean, if, if, and that's where we're going here, uh, the drift, 
is that we're going to, we're going to take the environment and put it right off to the side. Now, you, you tell me where Americans are going to put their focus, on getting a hold of this energy problem or cap-and-trade programs. The people in Nebraska, California, anywhere, $10 a gallon gasoline or cap-and-trade. Well, I think that's a pretty easy one to figure out. That's, what's go- that's a consequence that's coming here for lack of leadership, but that confluence in the world is coming. So we are going to address your question. We have time for two more questions. I'll, I'll be shorter in my answers. I'm, I'm going to go on back to get way, some other guys. Way in the back there? Way in the back. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Because you're the best-looking guy back there. There you go. <laughs> uh, mentor, Congressman, former Congressman Tom Evans asked me to give you his best regard. Oh, okay. Well. <laughs> and you told me that before I was the best-looking guy. Did I tell you that? <laughs> um, but you are. <laughs> Um, I um, had lived in uh, a, a northern African country uh, where I was the only American business person there, and all Muslims. And I didn't know I was really doing business with folks who had relatives that were in Al-Qaeda. And what I learned about these guys is two things. Their missions is two things. One, get out of the Middle East with their oil, and two, resolve the issue with Israel with the land. And their strategy, is, their strategy is simple. If we don't do it, they 1.2 billion Muslims. They're willing to have two, three babies a year. And over the next 25 years, just train these guys to blow us up. How do we resolve our foreign policy, policy to deal with people with that mentality? Because you can't fight people with that ideology. And, well, I, was, and I was on the ground with these guys listening. And I was listening very, very clear. Well, I... Um I've never lived in North Africa. I've been to most of the African countries and been to uh, all the the largest uh, Muslim countries. I, I, I don't – if your premise partly is that 1.2 billion Muslims all think the same way and all have the same attitude about America and so on, I don't agree with that. Um, I don't think Muslims are any different from Jews or Christians or Buddhists or anybody else, most of them, when it comes to what do they care about. Do they love their families? They care about their religions, about their own God? Do they care about respect? They care about tolerance, uh, ability for their children to, to, to do something meaningful in life? I don't think that's indigenous to any religion or any country. Um, uh, and I think th- uh, where we're making a mistake, in my opinion, on this issue uh, to some extent is kind of lumping everybody together. You know, all Jews are here and all the Muslims are here and Christians are here. You know, uh, there was such a thing about a thousand years ago called the Crusades based on that same flawed thinking. And it, it, uh, it did not enhance mankind. And uh, I don't think it enhanced any religion either, by the way. Uh, but we should have learned from that. And we will allow ourselves to drift into a similar kind of thing here unless we have some enhanced tolerant thinking. Now, as I said earlier and said a number of times, uh, are there terrorists out there? Is al-Qaeda out there? Of course. I sit on the Intelligence Committee. I have the last six years, so I get pretty much the same intelligence the president does or anybody else. That, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there are terrorists there, and they will do everything they can to destroy uh, America or Great Britain. Uh, they are not, in my opinion, and based on my knowledge, and you may know more about this, but uh, they're not in great numbers. But their numbers will grow and are growing. 
unless we deal with what I was talking about earlier, the fundamental causes of this. And we can't turn our back on what's going on in the world, and we've got to be smart. We can't do it alone. That's the other, that's the other fallacy of our policy, in my opinion, in the last few years. America can't fix this problem by itself. You will never be able to fix it militarily. The military people will tell you that first because they're actually in the last 12 years, the, generally the most enlightened thinkers I've found in government are, the, are senior military. I wouldn't put them all in that category. Some of them I wouldn't make a private in my army. Some of the generals, quite frankly, and I've told them their face. But, but many of them are very, very wide, big thinkers because they have to be. Why? We put the burden on the military. We say, okay, the military, you're going to be the warrior, you'll be the killer, you'll be the mayor, you'll get the sewer system fixed, you'll be the arbiter. And so we're asking our poor military to do everything. Of course, we're doing great damage to our military, tremendous damage to our military. So uh, it, it's a big area that the next president is going to have to work on, but we need alliances, we need relationships. Uh, I've said we should engage Iran, we should get back to some kind of some high ground uh, engagement with Syria. Um, you know, we have differences. Of course we have differences. But until we get back to what Eisenhower, Marshall, Truman, and so many of those great leaders base structured a world on after World War II on this premise, you define your relationships not on your differences but on your mutual interests. Uh, I think we're headed in the wrong direction with China and Russia. A lot of this talk, well, Russians and Putin and a puppet president. Wait a minute. Who in this room knows that situation? Uh, let's be smart here. Let's be wise. we got a new president coming into office. Let's work our way through this. Ronald Reagan said it perfectly. Trust but verify. You give everybody a little tolerance. Let them prove themselves. Let them work it out rather than just ride in on a horseback and chop their heads off. Uh, and say that's the way we're going to define this re relationship with those no-good Russians. We're going to drive them out of the G8 and so on and so on. I mean, what, what are we doing? America needs friends. We need relationships. We need allies. And my God, if there isn't any, anything more clear than that, 60% of our oil we import. And 70% of that oil we use, 22 million barrels a day, goes to transportation. You want to see a society locked down? If, if, if something happens with uh, transportation fuels, diesel, airline fuel, gasoline, ho, ho, you talk about a society coming loose and unraveling. Absolutely. We've, that's what I was talking about earlier, thinking through these things. There's not a question of whether terrorism is dangerous, whether it's there. Of course it is. But let's be smart in how we do it. We need friends. We need alliances. Trade does a tremendous amount of that to open up those markets and, and other ways. All right, one more. And I'm, I'm going to go in the back, get some. Yes, sir, on the end. Right there. Yes. Uh, senators to uh, advocate talking to Iran, um, one of the very few first. Um, can you comment now on the situ situation in that Mr. Bush is over in Europe um, on with one hand saying uh, there should be diplomatic solution to this standoff, on the other hand, implicitly threatening military action by saying keeping all military op or all options rather on the table? Where are you now on all of this? How do you get Iran to suspend or stop enrichment um, 
diplomatically. And what do you think the next president ought to do if this problem is held over for him to deal with? Thank you. Well, yeah. First, I'll be, I'll be as brief as I can be on this and do, because this could go on for hours. But, uh, but I, I uh, will respond this way. First, I think you must take a larger view, a wider lens view of Iran. First, which I've said many times, I talk about it in the book, uh, and I talked about it at the beginning of my comments here. We can't compartmentalize our relationships. The Middle East is the Middle East. One of the fundamental errors, in my opinion, we made in Iraq and other places in the Middle East is that somehow we've come at this like each of these problems is somehow isolated from the other problems. You're not going to deal with Iran on, on the basis, on the dynamics, on the structure that we say uh, Iran finances Hezbollah. They finance Hamas. Uh, they've got tremendous influence inside of Iraq. Uh, there's a question what the relationship is with Syria. You've got, you've got a lot of pieces to this, plus the, the nuclear issue here. And so that's the first thing I would do, and I've given speeches on this, and I've laid it out in very specific detail what I would do and how I would do it, um, is, is come at Iran, Iraq, Israel, Lebanon with a larger framework, the wider lens framework. Second, I don't think you can prescribe to a nation. Here's a nation, Iran. And by the way, I'm not an apologist for Iran. Uh, I, I know exactly, not exactly, I know a lot of what Iran's up to. And a lot of it's not good. Uh, so, so don't get me wrong here uh, on, on supporting Iran. I, I mean, that, that's not the issue here. The issue is the question, how do you deal with getting some results as to what the objective is, is, is to stop any further development uh, of nuclear capability for weapons. We don't really know what they've got and what they don't have. But I don't think you can do that with a nation like Iran or almost any nation, Syria. These are proud nations. Iran is a, is a culture of 5,000 years, the Persian culture. Uh, so we set down guidelines and preconditions. We'll talk to you about this, this, and this because we want to. And that'll be the privilege you'll have to sit down and talk with us. Now, we're going to have to reverse our optics a little bit. So second, I think we, sh we must come at this in a different way. Third, uh, sanctions, yeah, uh, that's fine. But we have, we have on the books right now three U.N. Security Council sanctions against Iran. Now, the president, as you know, is in Europe now, talking about, well, let, let's start squeezing them more through the European financial institutions. And uh, that's okay. I mean, as long as it's multilateral and we've got everybody on board. But here, let, let's look at the reality. Again, back up. What's the objective? China does business with them, continue to do business with Iran. Russia does business with them, continue to do business with them. The Indians, I was just in India a couple months ago, are working a deal with them to build a pipeline with Iran. We've got huge problems in Pakistan right now. I mean, that relationship is right on the, on the, on the border of, of being frayed away. And you talk about the most dangerous place in the world. The most dangerous place in the world is the Punjab Strip that separates Afghanistan and Pakistan. It isn't Iraq, ladies and gentlemen. It's not even close. That's where the problem is, as big a problem as anything. Iran's got relationships that we can't control beyond our ability to control those. Do I like that? That's just a fact of life. Let's factor that in our policies, how you deal with them. 
And uh, I don't think you're going to make much progress. We haven't so far, unless you think things are better in the Middle East than they have been. I think they're worse in the Middle East than they've ever been, more dangerous, more combustible, more tension, less margin of error, uh, until we are able to, to start something on some high ground, to, to start exchanging some way here to try to understand where is it that we can make some progress. Continuing to humiliate them in public, and continuing to berate them and, and uh, bludgeon them in public, how do we think that is somehow going to enhance our ability to influence them? Uh, it, it's not. For example, you remember the, the great speech, Axis of Evil. Do you remember one of those countries? North Korea. What are we doing with North Korea? Oh, no, we're engaging them. Oh, no, we're actually sitting down with North Korea. That's a terrible thing. That's terrible for humankind because we're not bombing the hell out of them and so on and so on. We actually may have some prospects to, what, accomplish the objective. Now, that's frustrating. We know of uh, North Korea's uh, trademarks. They lie. They cheat. So on and so on. Yes, that's right. That's right. So what's the alternative? You just go around and bomb them? I mean, we, I mean, we're in two wars now, neither going particularly well. Uh, we can always go to war in Iran. We can go to war in North Korea. That means that's what you want to do. Uh, and we may eventually, that may be the only alternative. I don't know. I don't know. But you got that alternative. But aren't we far wiser, just like we're doing in North Korea? It's imperfect. It's frustrating. But we're actually making progress there. We're actually getting down into areas that we have never seen before, physically, with our scientists, with our nuclear people. And we're, we're actually looking at documents over the last 20 years. Now, North Korea is still cheating and lying, probably. But that's that's... That's life in the big city, isn't it? Uh, that's the reality of what you got. And I would, I would apply the same kind of focus to Iran because what, what, what will happen here, if we don't turn some of this around, most likely Israel will attack Iran. That will drag us further into it. Uh, we'll have to support Israel. Then all hell is really going to break loose. And you talk about al-Qaeda and so on and so on. It will drive... Uh, a considerable number of the 77 million Iranians, and most of those, by the way, are under the age of 25 years old, and, 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 and they don't like the leadership that they've got, that will drive them right into the hands of, of the current leadership. And we will be the common enemy. We're, we bombed their country, or Israel has bombed their country, and we'll have to support that. You talk about oil prices and oil. Uh, consequences that will flow from no American will be safe in the world no American interests will be safe in the world Iraq will blow up, Lebanon's gone prospects for peace for Israel uh, in, in trying to work through something with Syria which, the, which they've been wanting to do by the way Prime Minister Olmert told me on two occasions the last ten months to my face that the United States has been telling him not to do it now we know different now because the Turkish Prime Minister laid, laid all that out so, imperfect world, President Nixon had it exactly right in some of his books when he talked about the imperfection of foreign policy. It is always a choice between bad, worse, and worse. Foreign policy is that way. And, and it isn't like dealing with the governor of New York or the governor of Nebraska or something. I mean, this is a whole different situation. And that's what we're not getting, in my, my opinion. The frame of reference of the kind of world we live in today, it's going to take a whole new frame of reference to think through these things as to how we deal with them. Thank you.
Let me just say that the U.S. Senate is going to miss that kind of reflective, thoughtful voice. And I really thank you for coming here. Senator Hagel said he'd be happy to talk to people upstairs, particularly if you bought a copy of his book. <laughs> Thanks, Ed. Thank you.